Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I work at a medical examiner's office in a large metropolitan area in the United States. You'll have to excuse the vagueness, but I value my job and safety. My safety is also the reason why I'm recording my recounting of what happened in the first place. I'm not sure what to do next or who may be coming for me, and my hope is that having some evidence, even if it's only my word at this point, may help me stay alive. Given what I know, it's a very small hope. Yesterday, a body came into the lab, badly burned. It had been found in a shallow grave out in the middle of nowhere, woods. The only reason it was found at all because the fire burning the body had spread to a nearby tree and then burned several acres before forestry got the call. It took two days to stop the fire spread, and it wasn't until they were investigating the source that they found the twisted remains of a man, legs and arms broken and bound by barbed wire that had melted into his flesh after he was set ablaze. Any idea of facial recognition or fingerprints was out of the window, and whatever blunt instrument had been used to break his limbs had also been used on his teeth. Still, his torso was partially intact, and after taking the initial round of external photos, I assisted the senior ME in conducting the autopsy. Fire and heat change a body in a variety of ways, and because of all those variables, weather, clothing, ignition catalyst, body shape and mass, plus the inherent fickleness of fire, you can never be sure what you're going to find during a burn autopsy. That being said, it still seemed odd that the internal organs were as intact as they were when we opened up our John Doe last night. A person, as terrible as it may sound, cooks up like any other animal or lump of meat. As the outside grows hotter, that temperature changes and pushes deeper and deeper into the center of the body, cooking the organs and muscle, the fat and bones, from the outside in. With some variants, you'll see that pattern replicated on any part of the body, though different materials obviously change due to a heat at different rates. Yet, even with the variances accounted for, the body had burned strange. The bones, which are more resistant than soft tissue, should still have some damage at the extremities, where there was less buffer between them and the fire, fingers and toes, for instance, or even at the wrists, ankles, and neck. But no, there was no real sign of any damage to the bones other than where they had been intentionally broken. And while the muscle and fatty tissue had melted within the expected parameters, the internal organs were almost unblemished. As we began excavating and weighing them, I asked my boss if he noticed it too, and he said he did. 
He's a reserved guy that doesn't speculate on much, but I could tell he was as confused as I was. I asked him if it was possible if someone had set him on fire and then put him back out before it could do more damage to the bones and organs, but he began to shake his head slowly before I was even done speaking. He told me that if that was the case, we'd see signs of it in the burned tissue. Irregular patterns where parts of the body was cooled off suddenly or melted residue from whatever was used to put out the fire. Besides, he said as he met my eyes, he'd heard the ranger that found the body said it was still burning when he found it. I felt my mouth open a bit. How was that possible? If it was the source of the fire, it would have been set aflame days earlier. Fire had to have fuel, and the body would have been consumed well before then if it was burning the entire time. I could tell he was thinking the same thing I was, but before I could voice it, he began taking off his gloves. He had a few calls to make before we went any further, finished cataloging the items we'd already removed, and then put the body in the freezer for the time being. He texted me in an hour or two when he was ready to get started again. All of this seemed strange. His demeanor, talking about calling someone to ask about the body, everything. But he was already leaving the examination room, and I still had to weigh the perfectly healthy-looking and unburnt intestines we'd just removed. It was as I was transferring them from the extraction bin to a sealed bag that I felt something hard and irregular inside. My first instinct was to just set it aside until we started back, but touching the bulge again, I reconsidered. It wasn't a natural shape. Hard and rectangular, I felt along the length of the intestine above and below it until I had a good sense of its dimensions and began to get an idea of what it might be. A USB drive. I glanced up at the clock. I had plenty of time to make a small incision and extract whatever it was. If it was important, that would certainly be better than leaving it in rotting guts to get damaged through another couple of hours of purification. Swallowing, I grabbed a scalpel. Five minutes later, I was holding a small black USB drive in my hand. After its interrupted journey through the body, there was no chance of any fingerprints or other viable trace of evidence, so I made the decision to clean it off. After that, it wasn't long before I started debating whether to plug it into my laptop or not. It was stupid. According to protocols, it should be bagged and sealed, deposited into the evidence lockbox, and examined forensically by someone in the computer forensics department. I knew that. But I felt this growing and irresistible urge to look at it anyway. At first, I chalked it up to curiosity, but as the impulse took hold, I sensed it was something more. I was afraid. More afraid than could be explained by the strangeness of the body or finding the USB drive. And for whatever reason, I had the gut feeling that looking at was on it was the key to understanding why. So I plugged it in, running the virus software on it before opening the one folder that popped up. It was supposedly clean, and the folder's name was normal enough. It said, Song. Looking on the folder, I saw there were seven MP3 files inside, number one through seven, without any other description. Dialing down my laptop speaker to 15, I selected the first one and hit play. A low, echoing thrum filled the examination room. It wasn't coming from my laptop, or if it was, 
It wasn't coming just from there. Waves of softly booming sound made the air tremble like distant thunder, and when I looked around, I could see the instruments near the exam table jumping slightly in time with the pulsing noises. And not just randomly. They were all hopping and rolling in the same direction. Away from the body. Standing up, I started back toward the corpse on the table. Somehow that sound was coming from the body. How was that possible? I had the image of someone stuffing a small subwoofer into the man's chest, but that was absurd, and even if someone had, why would it activate when I hit play on an unconnected laptop? I looked back at my computer just as the player switched to the second file. The thrum was suddenly gone, replaced by the sharply sweet sound of a violin or something that reminded me of a stringed instrument. The room was stiller now almost frozen in the delicate crystalline trance of the winding melody, something familiar and melancholy and terrible. I felt myself shudder as it began to coil inside my head like something dark and venomous. Wincing, I forced myself closer to the body. This new music was coming from there as well, but how? It had to be a hidden speaker, didn't it? I don't know how it was playing off my laptop, but that was the only logical answer. Bending down, I put my ear near the ruined charred torso. Yes, it was definitely coming from the body, but I couldn't identify a particular location. It was almost as if the entire corpse was a tuning fork, vibrating with whatever this awful song was. I found myself growing queasy. I needed to turn it off. I had to stop it before it got worse. I needed to... That's when I first heard the new noises from the body. It was a wet, sucking sound at first, rhythmic in its own way. It seemed to keep time with the razored melody digging into my brain, buried underneath or intertwined with those strings. Standing up, I looked down at the body. The organs we had removed, they were growing back. Staggering backward, I ran for the door even as the music shifted again. Now it was a chorus of some kind, whispering, sing-song voices, uttering sibilant phrases I don't understand, but that still made my skin crawl. Reaching the hallway, I looked back through the door at the body, sucking in a breath as its broken limbs began to reset. Turning away, I ran down the hall toward our office. If he was still there, I would get him. If not, I'd head outside and get in my car, call the cops from there. The hallway lurched as I turned the corner. The sound was still here. It was everywhere. And as it shifted from that singing whisper to a jangle of teeny bells, my stomach began to loosen as my limbs grew heavy. I had to make it to the office. I could lock the door, and even if my boss wasn't there, I could call for help. I. The senior M.E. was laying on the floor outside the door to the office, unconscious, his body shuddering in some kind of small seizure that echoed the ringing of the bells. Dropping to my knees, I felt my own limbs spasming as I crawled toward the door. If I could just get inside, if I could just make it inside. And then everything went dark. When I woke up, my phone said that about ten minutes had passed. 
pushing myself up, I saw that I'd almost made it to the door and the unconscious man next to it. I checked his pulse and breathing and both were fine. He was unconscious but stable, and as I dialed 911, I realized that the music had stopped. Everything was quiet. They said emergency services would be there in less than five minutes, and my first thought was to just stay with the senior medical examiner until they arrived, but then what I'd seen in the exam room came back to me. I had to have imagined it. That body making itself whole, that was impossible. The music had some kind of hallucinatory effect. Maybe it was some secret military shit, who knew, but dead bodies didn't heal themselves and I needed to get my shit straight before the cops got here and I started talking crazy. So I forced myself back down to the exam room. My heart fighting to get loose as I pushed open the door. I just had to see that the body was still there, unplug the USB drive from my computer, and then I'd go back to the office. The body was gone. Sucking in a breath, I looked all around the room, but there was no sign of anything out of place. I shot a look out the hallway behind me, but there was nothing there. Head pounding, I stepped inside, walking quickly across to my computer and reaching for the USB stick when I saw the player change. Now playing song 7.mp3. And then I heard my own voice echoing through the room. I work at a medical examiner's office in a large metropolitan area in the United States. You'll have to excuse the vagueness, but I value my job and safety. My safety is the only reason why I'm recording my recounting of what happened in the first place. I'm not sure what to do next. Snatching the USB drive from the laptop, I threw it into the sealed container we used for biohazard disposal. I was done with all of this. I was going to make sure that my boss was okay, and then I was leaving. They could check the cameras in the hall to find out who'd stolen the body or however it had gotten out there. I was going to play ignorant. Forget about the USB and the music, the healing corpse, and hearing my voice say words I didn't ever remember saying on a recording I'd ever made. It all went smoothly enough. The EMTs arrived and the senior medical examiner woke up with the first sniff of smelling salts, looking confused but no worse for wear. It still took hours until we were able to leave, but the cops had seemed momentarily satisfied that someone had knocked us out and taken the burned body that came in that evening. There were no cameras in the exam room, so they couldn't know the rest unless I told them, particularly when my boss seemed to remember little after us receiving the body. It was well after midnight before I made it home, and after a long shower I climbed into bed with little hope of ever actually falling asleep. It would have helped if I'd turned off the lights, but I wasn't quite able to. I woke up to the sound of something sliding out from underneath my bed. Letting out a small scream, I saw myself, tufts of hair, growing back and, among other patches, of black and red scalp. The eyes were bloodshot and sunken, but healed enough that they could focus on me clearly as this other me began to smile. A broken, bloody smile full of 
new teeth slowly pushing past the gums and the broken ruins that had been there before. Pale white tombstones and red earth that's gone sour. Screaming louder, I tried to back away, but it was too fast and strong. It pulls itself up on the bed and pushes me down, digging its gray fingernails into my cheeks as I struggle and squeal. It's still naked, but there are only traces of the fire now, and down at the center I can barely make out the pink ghost of my incision a few hours before. My mind is teetering now, balanced between self-preservation and buckling to the growing weight of madness as the air is forced from my lungs by his weight on me. In the end, it doesn't matter. It may look like me, but it's far stronger, and in a matter of moments, I'm bound to the bed with bedsheets and it's placidly picking through my clothes before selecting something to wear. When it leaves the bedroom, I have to hope it will just go away and leave me alone, but no. It's in the other room, talking, using my voice, saying the words I heard on the seventh file, and then going on, telling about last night and all that happened, even going into what's happening now while I struggle to get free, using my thoughts, my words, though I never even spoke them aloud. And then it stops for a moment and comes back into the bedroom. Smiling a whole smile. Smirking down at me as I piss myself with fear, I start crying, begging for it to let me go. Instead, it just laughs and starts narrating again, telling the recorder, my recorder, I use during autopsies what will happen next. He'll take me out to the woods, and there he'll dig a shallow grave. The place is near an old cattle fence, and it only takes a few minutes for him to strip off a line of rusted barbed wire to swaddle me in. A patch of my chest will stay free from sharp metal because that's where he'll sit as he grabs my cheeks and pries my mouth open. When I resist, he doesn't miss a beat. He just picks up a rock and breaks in my teeth until it doesn't matter if I fight. He can still fit the USB stick in, sliding it down my throat until I swallow. And then I'll wait a while, just watching me cry and snot and shit myself as he hums along to the gentle music of some unseen star. It's night by the time I can smell the gasoline he's siphoned from my truck. It's cold on my skin as it splashes over me, making me struggle and scream when I thought I didn't have any fight or noise left. I'll beg again at the end, mind half gone, trying to explain to him that this can't be happening. He's dead, which means he can't be alive. And all this already happened, which means it can't happen again. And he's me, but that can't be. There can't be two of us. Can there? When he pops the match on the night of the woods, his face is terrible and whole and familiar. If not for the past two days and the cruel look on his face, I'd think I was looking in the mirror. I recoil as he draws closer, and not just from the flame. He's smiling, but there's a coldness that is somehow worse than the blazing heat. I know it's about to come. You're right, you know. I feel a moment of uncertain hope. Maybe I've misunderstood something, but no. I knew what was coming, but because he already told me. Line for line, thought for thought, word for word, it's been recorded hours before as I listened. 
Despite myself, I can't help but say the lines he told me to say. Right about what? This can't be real. Is this all a bad dream? He lets out a chuckle. The flame to his fingertips now, but he doesn't seem to notice or care. No, no. The other part. Leaning down to my face, he set my cheek on fire as he whispers in my ear. There is only one of us. Everybody was huddled around the whiteboard in the empty cubicle. I slowly slipped my coffee as I observed the rather stupid event in silence. Pizza party today? One voice yelled from the back. No way. Darren never brings us anything. This thing is lying, another one shouted back. It's never been wrong before, a third chimed in. I adjusted my glasses and shook my head. This is just a thought, but... Maybe guys shouldn't set your own expectations on a random office whiteboard. You can write all the positive messages you want in your own cubicles. I got a severe glare from a couple of co-workers that made me throw my hands up in the feet and go back to working at my computer. I'm just saying it's stupid. I threw back at the crowd. I was met with shushes and I'm fairly certain I heard one person call me a non-believer under their breath. They continued to hang around the cubicle and talk, but as the clock struck 11.30, the crowd had long since disappeared. I walked over to my friend Jim, who was amongst the mass of people, and playfully knocked on the inside of his cubicle. So, almost lunchtime. Karen left already. What's your point, Tom? He asked without even looking at me. My point is, no one has talked about a pizza party. No one, no one asked who likes what. As far as I know, Darren has been too busy to even consider buying us all pizza. Jim stopped what he was doing and slowly turned to me. With an almost somber look on his face, he just sighed and said, The whiteboard's never been wrong, man. Ever. I laughed in disbelief. (laughs) Dude, we've seen messages every day on it for, what, two weeks? All of them have been stuff like, You'll have a good day, or the weather will be perfect, or everyone will get their work done and leave early. Those aren't predictions. They're just positive messages. They are, and they've all been right. Also, you're forgetting the more specific ones. Like? It told us Karen was pregnant before she knew that she was, the exact day that Mike would bring his dog to work, and we'd exceeded our goal for the quarter. I rolled my eyes at this. (laughs) So someone's a good guesser. Karen had been trying for months, Mike brings in his dog every few weeks, and we've all been doing well for a while. None of that is a secret. Jim simply shrugged and turned back to his work. Regardless, it's never been wrong, and it had always been first. I chuckled and started to walk away. (laughs) Right, just like it was right about the... Before I could even finish the sentence, the undeniable smell of... Pepperoni. I looked to my immediate left and I saw a group of people crowded around eating pizza. Raising an eyebrow, I walked over to one of the guys I was semi-close with in the group and asked, Eddie, when did this happen? It was awesome, man, he said excitedly. Darren rushed in with like five giant boxes, all different kinds. 
said it was a reward for our hard work and dedication. <laughs> what a great freaking boss. I kind of just stood there in disbelief. The pizza party was real. <laughs> I'll be damned, I said under my breath. I spent the rest of the day in awe, contemplating the fact that the damn thing was right. Ultimately, I settled on it being just a coincidence, but it was definitely a weird one. The next day, people had gathered around the whiteboard again, eagerly discussing the next message. Not wanting to upset the crowd, I refrained from my usual brand of skepticism and simply observed the conversation. Jim walked over to me with a smile on his face and asked if I heard the good news. Eh, no, I haven't, I said, shrugging. Let me guess, there's going to be an ice cream truck at 12.32. He laughed and shook his head. <laughs> nah, man, Barbara's getting promoted. She went to Darren's office ten minutes ago and hasn't come out since. Curious, I looked over toward Darren's office. Promotion, huh? That's news worth everybody waiting around? Yeah, man. He shot back with a wide smile. If Barbara gets promoted, that means that she's going to be in charge of managing the lot of the team. Everyone loves that woman. Not convinced, I tried to pry for more. Team management? That's what everyone is psyched about? Yeah, it's such a great thing for morale, and she's been here for years. I'm proud of the girl. Let's not get our hopes up, I said, taking a long sip of my daily coffee. Just then, the door to Darren's office opened up, and he was walking with Barbara toward the group. Large smiles on both of their faces. Everyone listen up, Darren began. As you all know, we've seen a great improvement at this company recently, and I couldn't be more proud of the lot of you. But one person has really stepped up and shown how valuable they are to this group and this company. So I want to formally recognize Barbara as the new team lead effective immediately. I looked on in disbelief. Well, damn, I thought, scratching my chin. At the time, the business with the whiteboard seemed obvious. It had to be Darren writing these messages as he was the only one possible person that could know about a pizza party and Barbara's promotion. Though for the past few days, I'd managed to show up before him and leave after due to some extra work. He certainly had to be the person that was making these so-called predictions. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why. What was the point? And wouldn't these two things be better off as a surprise? As Barbara gave her mini-speech, I decided to slip out of the room and head to the downstairs vending machine. It was a good excuse as the vending machine was right next to the security office and I casually strolled inside. Hey, John, I said to the man monitoring the multiple screens. He looked up from his lap, but then relaxed when he saw I wasn't a supervisor. <laughs> oh, hey, Tom, what's up? I just have a quick question. He raised an eyebrow. Uh, sure, I'll answer what I can. Did you notice or see Darren coming into the office after he left any time in the past few weeks, or maybe coming in early and then going off to do something else? He thought for a moment, but then shook his head. No, actually, he's been pretty consistent with his ins and outs. I think you're the only person I've noticed coming in early and leaving late. <sighs> this did not up. There was no way that Darren didn't come here at some point before people saw him. You sure, John? This time he responded confidently. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I definitely would have noticed or heard. I don't see him when I'm making my rounds, and he usually says hi and bye. Something up? Uh, nah. I was just checking to make sure he wasn't spending too much time on a project, you know? 
that guy has a family, so I was going to tell him if he was here for too long, then I could pick up the slack. I lied. I saw him return a confused look, but then shrug and go back to the phone on his lap. I made my way back to the desk and spent most of the day thinking about who else could have known about the events that took place. My wife even caught me staring off into space at home. I played it off as just being burnt out from working, long days, and she simply encouraged me to take more breaks at work, along with suggesting a trip sometime to get my energy back. (laughs) If only she knew. The next day I came in a bit later, as I slept past my alarm, and again everyone was standing around that whiteboard in the empty desk. I slowly took my seat and peered at the crowd. Something was off. That day... There wasn't jubilant conversation. All I could make out were confused whispers. After setting up my computer, I made it a point to walk by the crowd on the way to the kitchen and make my morning brew. I caught a glimpse of the whiteboard, but didn't get a chance to read it fully. I contemplated swallowing my ego and going into the crowd to read the damn thing, but decided against it knowing I would never hear the end of it if one of my colleagues saw me get caught up in the frenzy that I'd called them both out for on multiple occasions. I contemplated how to do a second sweep on my way back as my coffee was brewing, but suddenly I heard a loud pop, and I only had moments to bring my arms up to defend my face from flying pieces of the coffee maker and burning hot liquid. The coffee stung as it hit my arms, and my eyes grew wide at the small fire that was now coming from the device. Before I could even think to get help, I saw someone rushing to put out the fire with an extinguisher, and Jim was around the corner helping me to get my shirt off and cool them down with damp paper towels. I looked around trying to ask what the hell happened and I saw a small group of employees standing around the corner looking down at me. Confused, I stood up once Jim had wrapped my arms with bandages and I'd put my shirt back on. I asked how the hell they responded so quickly. When no one spoke, I became frustrated. Can you all say something? Did you know the coffee maker was broken or am I the only one who's suspicious about how you all knew how to come here so goddamn fast? Mike, who had worked a couple of cubicles down from me, stepped forward and muttered, We, uh... We read it on the whiteboard. I threw my hands up in disbelief. (laughs) This shit again? Are you serious? You expect me to believe that. Coffee makers don't just explode, and you want me to believe it's because of some magic whiteboard? It's true, Tom, Jim said. We read it on the whiteboard. We didn't know who it would happen to or when, but it said that someone would use the coffee maker in the morning and that it'd explode on them. All we could do was be ready for when it happened to minimize the damage. Are you people for real? I yelled, fully agitated at Jim's comment. Even if I pretended that this stupid thing is real, then why the hell didn't you just throw the stupid thing out instead of letting me get hurt by it? Another one of my coworkers stepped up. Because we didn't know the circumstances of the explosion. Maybe it would have blown up just by touching it. No one was taking that risk. This really pissed me off. So you're just going to let me take the fall? I pushed Jim out of the way and stormed toward my cubicle, but before turning the corner, I turned back to the crowd. It's just a fucking whiteboard, you guys. Leave it alone and start acting like goddamn adults. Honestly, I'm surprised Darren didn't make me come to his office for my outburst, but I think at that moment, everyone understood my frustration.
The rest of the day went on normally, but I could have sworn that on my way out of work, when I glanced at that thing, I saw a smiley face in the corner. And under it was a message that read, Hi, Tom. Of course, my wife asked about the burns, and I just told her I had a coffee accident. Honestly, her response kind of made the experience worth it. Seeing her wide smile and beautiful blue eyes dance when she thought I was going to decide to sue bought me joy that I could never replace. I told her that, unfortunately, the amount of time and money it would cost wasn't worth it for me, and I couldn't in good conscience sue the company I had dedicated years of my life to because of some freak accident that they had no control over. The coffee maker had been absolutely fantastic until that day, and I haven't heard of many exploding or catching fire, so I would take the pain and move on to the next day. Unfortunately, the next day was when shit really started to hit the fan. I made sure to get to the office extra early. This time, I wanted to see who the hell was writing these messages and how they were manipulating what was happening in the office. Before I went over, I went down to the vending machine, avoiding the newly placed coffee maker, got as many sodas as I could carry, and then grabbed a chair to stare at that damn whiteboard until something new showed up. To my slight relief, it was empty. It was 6am on the dot on a Friday, and most people didn't start rolling in until after 9. I knew it was crazy, but I wanted to prove once and for all that the messages being written were by a regular person. Three hours straight of staring. I didn't look at my phone. I didn't look at my watch. I fought the damn urge to get up and pee to prove that it wasn't some magical force compelling words to show up on this thing. All it took was a second. I heard the office door opening and someone calling out my name for me to look over, and by the time I looked back, a new message was on that fucking whiteboard. What the hell? That's impossible! I screamed, damn near ready to pull the hair out of my head. I looked away for a second. How could there be something written there? I paced around for a second, which caused Mike to walk over to me. Everything all right, Tom? You seem... He stopped mid-sentence and focused in on the whiteboard. The color drained from his face the second he read what it said. I traced his eyes to the words and my heart dropped when I read along with him. It stated, Mike will have a terrible accident in the stairwell. He will fall and break his leg so badly that it will need to be amputated. He'll see the bones sticking out and pass out at the sight. It'll take five minutes for someone to find him, and the pain of the incident will last forever. I... I couldn't move from that spot. I just read this statement over and over again, as I'm sure Mike was doing as well. Mike, I... I'm so sorry. He didn't respond. Slowly, people started to show up and gather around the whiteboard. Everyone gave Mike their condolences, but at the end of the day... There was nothing that could be done. We all knew that. Our office was on the third floor of the building, and like clockwork, we all got a memo that the elevators were completely out of order. 
He could play the waiting game and stay overnight, maybe a few days, but at some point, he would have to come down. I saw a sense of acceptance on his face. As the workday went on, I caught him staring at his computer screen but not typing. It was like he was trying to decide what time to pick for him to endure the most traumatic moment at his life. Finally, at 2.30, he decided to go home early and walk down the staircase. Fuck this, I thought. There's no way I'm waiting five minutes. I waited until he'd gotten up, and as soon as he did, I called an ambulance and told them that a terrible accident had taken place. As soon as I got off the phone, I rushed over to the stairwell, and I attempted to fling open the door, but I found... It was stuck. After a few seconds of pulling, I called for help and yelled that Mike had gone down. Some people rushed over and tried to pry open the door, but we all failed. I got the idea to run to find the janitor. He didn't quite understand my sense of urgency, but we finally got him over and told him to help us open the door. He mentioned something about the doors being sticky sometimes and locking by themselves, and while I appreciated his help, I damn near threw him aside as soon as he popped the door open. And there Mike was, unconscious, with his leg bent in a disgusting manner. I could see the bone had snapped clean out of his skin, and it looked like parts of it had shattered around him. As painful as the sight looked, I waited until the ambulance came by to cart him off. I really wanted to go with him to make sure he had someone there, but at the moment, there were much more pressing matters. I rushed upstairs. I was about to march into Darren's office and force him to call an urgent meeting, only to find that it had already been done. Barbara was leading the conversation, and I couldn't tell if she was angry or terrified. Listen, whoever's writing these messages, it ends today, she scolded. What happened today was a tragic event, and good or bad, this isn't just an office matter, it's a legal one. If you're responsible for those pranks, step up now and your punishment won't be as severe as what it could be. We will find out who did this, even if you don't speak. Don't make it worse on yourself. One man spoke up. You think we did this? Who would burn Tom or permanently disfigure Mike? You'd have to be a psychopath. Another followed. Who even knows how to do those things? A woman stood up from the crowd. I think James from HR did it. He likes to pull other office pranks who said he didn't do this one. You fucking bitch, James shot back. You're blaming me for this shit? Maybe you're doing it and blaming me to cover your tracks. Before long, the place had erupted into full-on chaos. Blame was being thrown around, fear was abundant, and a couple of people damn near came to blows. I could only take so much before standing on a chair and screaming at everyone to calm down until they stopped. Listen to me! I yelled. I know we're all confused, upset, and terrified. I get it. But we can't blame each other. Logically, none of us would do anything like this to each other. A prank here and there, sure, but nothing like what we saw in the past couple of days. I know I've been a skeptic, but I came in early today and stared at that whiteboard for three fucking hours straight, and it was blank. I take my eyes off it for a second, and there's something written there. 
I know some of you might think that I did it, but we can check the security tapes. I know we have the cameras. I don't know what we're dealing with, but it's something... It's something else. The room was silent. I noticed Darren whisper something to Barbara and she quietly left the room. Ten minutes later, she came back and confirmed that I had been here and that I hadn't written anything on the board, but that she couldn't make out the exact moments when the words appeared. So what do we do then? A voice shouted from the crowd. Darren stood up to face his employees. You know what? He said with conviction. Let's just remove the problem. He casually walked over to the whiteboard, took it off the cubicle wall, and then reached over and snapped it in two. He then walked the pieces out to the dumpster and came back bragging that he'd solved the issue. Trashman comes and picks up everything tonight. It's been a rough couple of days, so everyone goes home early today. Let's commit to a nice, whiteboard-free Monday and send our thoughts to Mike and his family over the weekend. Yeah? His offer was met with silence and a slow shuffle to our cars. On the way home, I couldn't stop thinking about what I saw. I spent that Friday and subsequent weekend almost silent. Not just because of what I'd seen, but because my brain was still trying to contemplate what the hell was behind all of it. My wife was an angel during that time and tried her best to comfort me. I still don't want to talk about the events, but it made me feel better knowing that she cared. I made time to go see Mike in the hospital, and it made me feel at least a bit better, but still, the painful memories of what I saw persisted. I'd seriously contemplated taking Monday off, but I figured the only way to get back to normalcy was to push past the pain. I tried to keep my normal routine and even made coffee before walking out of my computer. But before I could even try and start my day, a crowd was again gathered in front of the empty cubicle. I sighed and squeezed into the crowd, and I grew cold. I could feel the weakness in my body start to build as I read the message on the freshly replaced whiteboard. Darren dies a horrible death. Perhaps the most chilling thing about the messages was the smiley face after those five words. I ran into Darren's office to tell him about the message, but he hadn't come in yet. I asked everyone if they'd seen him, and everyone assured me that he'd been calling and looking, but to no avail. Fuck, I thought, where the hell could he be? I had the sense to go outside and check the back parking lot. Once I got there, I made a shocking discovery. His car had never left there, and I noticed it. A body was slumped forward in the driver's seat. I immediately dialed 911, and as soon as they were on their way, I ran over to security and damn near threatened John to show me the security footage from this morning and last night. Nothing. I thought for a moment and asked him if he could scroll through Friday night. Our eyes grew wide as we watched Darren leaving late. As he was about to walk to his car, a figure in a dark hoodie ambushed him from behind and hit him in the back of his head with what looked like a pipe. He then pulled out a knife and slowly started carving something into Darren's still twitching body before finally taking out a gun and putting a hole through his chest. 
Once Darren was definitely dead, the figure fished into Darren's pocket, pulled out his keys, and then pushed the carcass into the passenger seat. Jim flipped the camera as we watched the person pull into the back parking lot to be less noticeable. He parked, moved Darren into the driver's seat, and then simply walked away. From what I could tell, the figure never tried to take anything or ask for something. They simply killed Darren in cold blood and left. I told John to come with me, and by the time we got outside, the police was already there. We went through the rounds of questioning and showed them the tape, but beyond that, there wasn't much we could do. We simply let them do their jobs, and once they were done, they said they'd be in touch. And, as you can guess, it was somber in the office, to say the least. Many people straight up quit that day, me among them. As I pulled out of the parking lot, I never looked back. I told my wife that something had happened, people were getting laid off, and that all I wanted to do was take that stress-free vacation she'd mentioned. It wasn't until years later that I finally told her the truth, and when I did some digging into the outcome. From what Jim told me, the office burned down shortly after. Not just ours, the entire building. Everyone had to be moved or just decided to separate from the company entirely. I had kept in touch with Mike a little bit, and unfortunately, yes, they did have to amputate, but he seemed to be otherwise in good spirits. I tried to keep up with Darren's case as much as possible, but to this day, a killer was never found, and for such a gruesome crime, the police were absolutely baffled at how there wasn't one iota of DNA from anyone except for Darren in his car. The only thing they had to go on was a large smiley face carved into Darren's chest. For a while, they thought it was some kind of calling card, and police tried tying it to other potential and confirmed killers, but nothing ever came from it. All in all, it was a crazy experience, and I don't think it was until later that I realized how lucky I was to come away from it almost completely unscathed. Some of the burn scars remained, and I drank a little less coffee than I used to, but all things considered, I made it out pretty okay. To this day, I still wonder about the whiteboard in that empty cubicle. But for the most part, I've decided to just let sleeping dogs lie in the future. I will always take things, even if I find them stupid, much more seriously. Everyone was sad when Rusty the Firehouse Dog passed away in 1955. He was a pillar of the community, an icon, a true hero. They buried him in the firehouse lawn and erected a beautiful bronze statue at the head of his grave so he could continue to watch over the community he loved. That's how I started my essay on pillars of the community. I'd intended to backtrack and tell the story of Rusty's life through testimonies of those he'd saved, and as my interviews progressed... I came to realize I needed to change topics. Instead, I submitted a report on Miss Ippy's charity bake sale. She'd raised $100 for the sick kids' hospital. As much as Rusty's story needed to be told, there's a good reason I didn't submit it. I don't think my professor would have believed me. See, 
Among the heartwarming antidotes about Rusty's life were stories of his death. I don't mean how he died. I mean taking place after his death. My friend read my original report on Rusty and suggested I post it here. I'm sure you'll understand why I changed horses midstream. No one knew how old Rusty was or where he came from. He was just some mud firefighters found out back shaking from the cold. They took him in for the night hoping his family would come for him, but no one ever did. Rusty got his name from his matted ginger coat, which was discovered after washing a bucket of mud covering his fur. Unlike the Dalmatians you normally see accompanying firefighters, Rusty wasn't bred for the job, wasn't taught to be some poised heroic mascot. He grew into it. He'd follow the crew and sneak out onto the fire trunk as it whirred out of the station. Eventually, he started pulling people out of burning houses. He was the epitome of a good boy. When asked about her experiences with Rusty, Camilla Langley had this to say. I hadn't even realized my house was on fire. I was woken up by my mother and father screaming my name. It was dark and I couldn't breathe. I turned on my bedside lamp, but it was still so dark. That's when I felt a tug on my ankle. I reached down and touched a furry head, urging me out of the bed. Rusty guided me out of the house, right into my parents' arms. All he wanted in return was a few belly rubs. That was one of many tales of Rusty's heroism leading up to his death in 1955. After enjoying seven years on the force, Rusty's life came to a tragic end when he was struck by a speeding car. People mourned, the statue was erected, life went on. And Rusty came back. According to my research, the first incident was in 1957, two years after Rusty's death. Retired firefighter Thomas Wilkins sat down with me and shared his story. It was a bad one. The fire, I mean. It started in the basement. Ground was unstable. I could feel the heat coming up through the hardwood floor. If I stepped too hard, my feet would sink a little. The structure was weakening. I would have left, but I was trying to get to the back of the house because I thought I heard screaming on my way out. The heat was unreal. The captain called for us to evacuate, but goddammit, I knew in my gut someone was still alive in there. Suddenly the floor collapsed and I fell into a fiery basement. I was knocked unconscious, and when I came to, I was being dragged up the stairs by my pant leg. I was disoriented, had a concussion. I looked up to see who'd come to my rescue, but there was nothing there. I had no idea who or what was dragging me up, and then I blacked out again. I woke up in the backyard next to a little girl with Sergeant Parker standing over me and telling me I must have crawled out, but her heads were facing the house. <laughs> who the hell crawls out backwards? No one saw Rusty, not even me, but I knew it was him who saved us. Another similar incident involved William Schaefer. Remember the drought of 58? Uh, wait, no, no, of course not. You're way too young for that. What am I talking about? You weren't even born yet. I don't even think your parents were born yet. You should ask your grandparents about it. Anyway, where was I? Yeah, drought. Believe it or not, the whole neighborhood was countryside back then. There was a brook behind my house and little old pine trees going all the way around the property. Not all this concrete balcony we have today. 
I just want to pause and clarify something for you guys. I live in a city that went through rapid development in the 50s and 60s. Mr. Schaefer's childhood home was just on the edge of the firehouse's service area, right before the farmlands. Today, it's a suburb with a bunch of duplexes. The air was hot, the earth was crackling, and the brook was almost dry. I was alone. My sister had come down with polio, and my parents had taken her to town. This was before the vaccine, you know. Goddamn tragedy. She was on an iron lung for weeks. Anyways, I was old enough to be on my own. Went to bed late and slept like a log until I heard growling coming from my closet. Yeah, I was old enough to take care of myself, but I was still young enough to be scared of monsters. I hid under my covers and tried to be quiet, but the growling got louder and louder. I was scared. Didn't know what to do. I remember my dad's shotgun by his nightstand, so I gathered up the courage to get up. Headed to my parents' room, and that's when I saw a wall of orange outside their window. Pines were on fire. The blaze was jumping quickly toward the house, like a goddamn wave. I froze. I heard a growly bark behind me that snapped me out of it. I turned to leave, and I could have sworn for a split second I saw old Rusty's silhouette watching me from the darkness, his beady little eyes glowing like embers. As the flames drew closer to their house... Their light stretched into the hallway, and I realized I was alone. I heard the inconsistent barking at the front door, so I followed the sound leading me to safety. The house was raised to the ground before the fireman even arrived. Rusty saved my goddamn hide. Rusty the firehouse dog, a hero in life and death, I thought. Until I spoke to Maria Lopez. She welcomed me into our home and fed me milk and cookies. Even though the fire had been over 60 years ago, the scars looked just as fresh as now as they'd been made yesterday. They covered the right side of her face like the grooves of the Grand Canyon, but they seemed to disappear when I looked into her gray eyes. She spoke of the incident in a bizarrely serene tone. In 1962, I was about your age. I was getting ready for a date with a strapping lad down the street. I was curling my hair and doing my makeup in the master bathroom. Put the curling iron where I always put it. Porcelain plate on the counter next to me so as not to burn the countertop. I leaned forward to put a bit of makeup on and then I caught a strange odor. Like wet dog. I didn't look. I just kept priming and preening for my date. The smell of dog went away eventually but in its place... There was a hint of something burning. Thinking I'd accidentally put the curling iron on the counter rather than the plate, I quickly tried to grab it, but it wasn't there. Not on the plate. Not on the counter. Not even on the floor. And then I heard a low growl in the bedroom. The curling iron was igniting the bed. I can't believe how fast the flames spread. I barely had time to scream from my parents before the whole room was ablaze. They came running, but they couldn't reach me. I had no way out. The bathroom didn't have a window, and the bedroom floor had become engulfed in flames. Mom told me to get in the tub, so I did. Peeking over the edge from time to time to find the fire closer every time, I can still feel the heat searing into my skin. Through the crackling of the flames... I remember hearing that unnatural growl, like a dog trying to scare away an intruder. 
Maria spent two months in the burn unit following the ordeal. She was convinced something had taken that curling iron and put it on the bed. Her family wasn't so sure. They'd believed she'd done it as a cry for attention, but the fire had gotten out of control. She'd suffered enough, though, so they didn't punish her. She could never explain the smell of wet dog, nor what the growling was in her through the fire. Then there was the case of Tyler and Candace Miller, the latter being a young mother in 1965, almost exactly ten years after Rusty's death. I was making supper, and Tyler was laughing alone in his room. Good boy, good boy, he screamed happily. It was so strange. I know it's normal for children to create imaginary friends, but there's still something unsettling about hearing your child talk to thin air. At dinner, I'd asked who he'd been talking to, and he answered, Rusty. Now, I'd taken him to Rusty's 10-year memorial at the fire station a few days prior and showed him the statue. He learned all about how Rusty used to ride on the fire truck and how he saved people from burning buildings. I assumed the stories had inspired this new imaginary friend. His nightlight malfunctioned that evening, or so the fire marshal's report explained. Some sort of short circuit caused the spark, curtains caught fire. I heard Tyler scream and ran out of his bed. His room was full of smoke, so I scooped him up and headed to the door, tripped on something soft. I couldn't tell you what. Maybe a stuffed bear. And then I heard this odd hiss, like a gas leak in an old pipe. The flames started to spread, almost like they were chasing us. I pushed along with my heels. Tyler still tight in my arms, but just as I reached the threshold, I felt something clamping down on my ankle. He yanked me toward the fire. Out of instinct, my arm shot up and grabbed the door frame while the other held Tyler. I clawed at that frame so hard they found a few of my nails embedded in it. I flailed my leg to try and break free, and then I hit something hard. I heard a whine, and the rib loosened enough for me to get away. I scuttled out of the room and then let go of Tyler just for a second so I could push myself up. And that's when I saw him being dragged back in. Door shut in my face. I heard the fire hissing and Tyler screaming for help. I tried the door handle, but it was scalding hot. I could barely hold on. I tried to open it, but she showed me her burnt palms. I wrapped my shirt around my hands and tried again, but the door wouldn't open. I screamed and cried and threw myself against it to break it, but it was useless. Nothing worked. I fought until I passed out from smoke inhalation. The firefighters came in time to save me. They found Tyler's skeleton curled up in what was left of his bed. There are a lot of accounts just like Candace's. Reports of growling, barking, eyes in the darkness, a silhouette in the flames, and people getting dragged into danger. 
And then the stories shift drastically from being told by lone survivors to being told by the firefighters on duty. The more time passed after Rusty's death, the higher the death toll. Lieutenant LaCroix told me about his most horrific call. We were responding at a brand new apartment building with 15 units. I thank God every day that only three families had moved in when it happened. God, it was horrific. I'm not sure you're old enough to hear this, kid. Right, it's for school. Well, okay. So the entire first floor was burning. Wasn't safe to go in through the front door, but since three families were on the higher floors, we brought in the ladders and tried to get them from the windows. I remember this one woman. She was holding her baby out the window and screaming, I'm throwing him to you, I'm throwing him to you. But no one was there to catch it. It was chaos. It looked like apocalypse, I'm telling you. The fire stretched out of the building and made the sky look aflame. There was smoke and fire everywhere. I've never, in my entire career, seen anything like it. It spread like wildfire on crack. It would jump from one unit to the next, lighting each like someone's going room to room, flicking on all the switches. People were crying, screaming. It was like hell on earth. This one Mexican couple on the fifth floor, the husband kept repeating, Shit, what was it again? Piero? Piero del Inferno? No. Infierno. Yeah, that was it. Piero del Infierno. I'm still not sure what that means. We set the ladder against his window, and just as O'Connor started to climb, the guy was jerked back violently, and the wife screamed bloody murder. The fire skipped to her unit, and spit out her window like a volcano. There was nothing we could do. He started to shake as he shared the story and refused to finish. I spoke to a few more firefighters, each with similar stories to tell. No one wanted to say Rusty was behind the fires because that would have been ludicrous, but one of them did admit they frequently used to, and someone else confirmed they still do, find sooty paw prints leading out of burning buildings. I'm sure you understand why I changed the topic of my essay. Rusty was supposed to be a pillar of the community. He saved people in life. He saved people in death. And then something changed. I want to leave you with a final chilling fact. Rusty's old firehouse is the highest performing fire station in the entire city, and that might sound like a good thing because high scores are awesome, right? But here's the thing. In this case, high-performing means it's put out most of the fires because the area has most fires to put out. If you overlay a map of incidents in the city with an old map of firehouse districts from back in the 50s, there's a notable pattern of fires specifically happening within Rusty's old service perimeter. It looked like a hotbed of activity dating back decades and getting increasingly worse. The city blames poor construction and older buildings on the higher rates of incidents. Me? Well, I think Rusty can't stray far from home.
I was referred by a temp agency. I had no idea who I'd be working for or what the job would entail. I only knew that the pay was good. A week-long excursion at $7.25 a night. More than enough to pay off a couple of credit card bills and a good chunk of next month's rent. For that price, I would have done almost anything. I only wish I knew at the time what I was getting myself into. When I arrived at the address, I was surprised. It was a large facility at the end of a dirt road in the woods, two towns over. The large sign outside read, Syntheticorp. It was a plain white three-story building void of identifying markings. Its appearance gave me no clues to its purpose. Its location was even more baffling. Going off the name alone, I had to assume that it was some sort of biotech company. I'd probably needed to clean up radioactive waste or something to that end. For what they were paying me, I'd happily risk my health. Upon entering the building and meeting with the receptionist, I was directed to room 371 on the second floor, where I would wait for Al, my new boss. It was your standard office setting, albeit more quaint than usual. Red carpet, white walls, and no windows. Only six desks and three rows of two, each with their own computer. At the back of the room was a large wall covered by a one-way mirror and opening with steps on either side of it. Inside was a single chair, desk, and landline phone. Probably a place for supervisors to oversee productivity. Other than that, the room harbored no points of interest unless you fancied the waste bin and a fern in the corner. An older gentleman opened the door to the room and came over to shake my hand, introducing himself as Al. He seemed to be in a rush, wasting no time in describing the task at hand. I was to stay in that very room from 8pm until 6am the following day, every night for a week. He left me his cell number and laminated list of rules to be followed. He told me he could not overstate enough the importance of following each and every one exactly as they were outlined. Once he was sure I understood the gravity of the situation, he left me to my first shift in peace, closing the door behind him. That was it. Really? Just stay in the room for ten hours at night? I had no clue why I was being paid over $5,000 to room sit, but I learned some time long ago to never look a gift horse in the mouth. I simply sat down in the overseer's room with a smile on my face and went over the list of rules. There were ten in total, all of which left me more than a little confused. Rule one. Once eight rolls around, lock the door and do not leave the room for any reason until six. Plan your bathroom usage and meals periods accordingly. No food or drink items within the room. Two. Do not use Hank's computer. It is the closest to the exit. No one is to ever touch it under any circumstances, not even Hank. 3. If the phone rings, answer it, but do not talk. No matter what the voice on the other end says, you are not to respond. Hang up after two minutes have passed. Rule 4. Don't let the janitor in. We don't have one. 5. If anyone else comes to the door, let them in but ignore them. Do not react whatsoever. When they leave, shut the door and lock it behind them. 6. If the waste bin changes locations, place it back in the corner as soon as you notice. 7. If I stop by, only let me in if I know the password. 8. At 9.30 precisely, set each of the computer's home screens to different URLs except Hank's. Do not react to the images. Act normal. 9. 
If you see Harvey, feed him one of the treats from Lisa's desk, the one opposite Hank's. 10. If there's an emergency, call my cell, but not after 10.05 p.m. Below the last rule was a final statement scribbled over the laminate and pen. No one has made it past night three. Good luck. I was perplexed, wondering for a moment if Al was a lunatic and if that was the reason no one else had lasted. Perhaps his quirks were too much for the previous candidates and they backed out, fearing for their safety at the hands of his fragile mind. I would not be swayed so easily. Even if Al was crazy, I would happily take his money for what was shaping up to be a very simple job. At least that's what I thought. Day one was utterly boring. Nothing remarkable happened, definitely not anything to the extent of what Al's list would have me to expect. At 9.30, I even changed the URLs on some of the computers, if for no other reason than to feel somewhat useful. The next night, however, was a little different. Day two started as it normally did. I settled in for another long night, making sure to eat and empty my bladder before locking myself in. At 9.25, I was just about to ready myself to change the home screens again, and I saw it. The waste bin was right there at the top of the steps to the overseer's room. I certainly hadn't placed it there. I felt a small spike in my adrenaline before calming down with a smile. The waste bin, the list. It was all a joke at my expense. I would be in the next room waiting anxiously to see the look on my face. I raced out to the office floor. There was no one there. I walked over to the exit and shook the knob. It was still locked. Confused and a tinge scared, I swiftly picked up the waste bin and walked it back over to the corner of the room. I checked the time. 9.30. I started changing the URLs on all the computers, hoping desperately that I had imagined what had just occurred. After skipping Hank's desk, I typed in the last website on PC number 6. I was about to pull away when some strange imagery manifested on the screen. It was surveillance footage of the room, the very room I was in. I saw myself looking at the computer. I turned and looked up, but there was no camera. Upon looking back at the screen, I saw something terrifying. I watched as the copy of me stepped out of the overseer's room. It walked up behind me, grabbed a hard drive from one of the desks, and wound up to strike me in the back of the head. I quickly turned to shield myself. There was no one there. I turned back and the screen changed, displaying the website I'd entered as normal. I raced back to the overseer's room and sat down, more than a bit frazzled. I contemplated walking out, but I steeled myself to continue. It was fine, after all. Maybe Al wasn't a lunatic, but he didn't seem the type to wish me any harm. Not that I knew him that well. Still, I hadn't sustained any damage. I was questioning my sanity, yes, but no bodily injuries had befallen me. Whatever was at play here seemed harmless so far. Knock, knock. There was a loud banging. Having just had the most horrifying experience of my life, I nearly jumped out of my skin. 
A voice then penetrated the door. It's the janitor, just here to clean up. Can you open the door? I recalled rule number four and denied him entry. You did good not letting him in. You followed the rule. Now you're fine. So long as you follow the rules, you'll be safe. It's as simple as that. You can see this through. Knock, knock. I jumped again. I really need to get in there and clean up. Open the door. I took a deep breath and peeled back my anxiety, successfully ignoring the janitor until he left. This was an accomplishment for me, and it actually felt pretty good. A challenge that I was able to best. Though I remained on the edge of my seat for the next few hours, they were uneventful. I even dozed off for a moment at one point. It wasn't until 2.30 a.m. that my next challenge would come. A multicolored cat jumped upon the desk in front of me, complete with beautiful splotches of black and orange. I was startled, but it seemed to be friendly, brushing up against my arm. The name on its collar... Harvey. I knew what I had to do. I rummaged through Lisa's desk, found the jar of treats, and fed Harvey one, to which he purred in delight. To my astonishment, he then charged at the door, phasing right through it. My mouth was agape in awe. Once my initial bewilderment dissipated, it was replaced with satisfaction over another small victory. As strange as it may sound, I was beginning to like the job. Ring, ring. It was the landline. Remembering the rules, I removed it from the receiver and held it in my ear, making sure to keep an eye on the time. Hey, it's Al. I'm going to be stopping by pretty soon to do a little work. How's the job treating you so far? I remained silent. Hello? You know you can talk if it's me, right? I picked up the set of rules and looked over them again. There was nothing about Al calling. I didn't respond. This is no way to treat your employer. If you don't say anything, I'll have no choice but to fire you. Do you really want that? I stood my ground, only 20 seconds to go. Fine. I'll see you soon to relieve you of your duty. I guess you couldn't even make it past night too. The two minute mark came and I hung up on him. I felt safe as another hour went by, reflecting on the trials I'd faced thus far. I was bewildered, but determined. I wasn't going to let the room cloud my judgment. I was in control. Knock, knock. It's Lisa. Can I come in? Though hesitant, I had to abide by Rule 5. I opened the door and a woman entered. You must be the new guy. What do you think of the place? I went back to my desk in the overseer's room and sat down, trying my best to act casual. Lisa walked up to the glass, knowing I could see through it. Not very talkative, are you? Her eyes unnaturally darted around in all directions, and her skin drooped a bit, almost as if it was falling off the bone. I didn't answer. And she didn't speak again. Instead, she stared at the glass for a long time, long enough to leave me feeling truly unsettled. She then waltzed in and stopped at my side, raising her arm. I hoped she wouldn't notice that my breathing had become sporadic and labored, but she then violently swung down on the desk, creating a thunderous clap. 
I almost winced, but held my composure. After another awkward five minutes or so, she left. I ran to the door and locked it behind her. A few moments later, there was yet another knock. This time, it was a boy claiming to be searching for his father. I let him in and sat back down. He tried many times to ask for my help, but I was careful to ignore him, just as I had with Lisa. At one point, however, I made the mistake of meeting his gaze. For an instant, in between blinks, his eyes became pitch black, void of all color. Startled, I nearly jolted back but was able to restrain myself. Like Lisa before him, the boy eventually left and I quickly locked the door behind him. Another rule followed. Other than the waste bin moving around a few more times, nothing else happened that night. Before I knew it, it was time to go home. I heavily considered calling it quits, and may have even had a nightmare or two upon sleeping that day, but I found myself excited to continue, wondering what obstacles the room would throw at me next. Curiosity shouldn't have been enough to bring me back, but all rational trains of thought escaped me. The room had this pull that beckoned me to it. I was hopelessly compelled to return, powerless to its call. Any excuse I would have sufficed. As such, I assumed my post the following night. Upon starting my shift, I was confident. I had dealt with quite a few absurdities up to this point and waited patiently for my next opportunity. A couple of hours went by with no trouble, no cat, no images on the computers, no phone calls, and no waistband antics. Boredom was beginning to set in when a loud knocking broke the silence. There was no voice, so I yelled out from the overseer's room. Who is it? I asked. There was a brief pause. It's me, Al. I picked up the list and reread rule number seven. What's the password? I heard him chuckle to himself. I never wrote down a password. He was right. There was no password written with the rule. It must have been him. I cautiously made my way to the door and opened it. Al was there to greet me with a smile. I sighed in relief. Let me guess, scared of things that go bump in the night? He laughed at my clear, nervous disposition. (laughs) You have no idea. He shut the door and set up some things at one of the computers. Say, why didn't you write down a password? I asked. He smiled again. (laughs) It's a ploy. Anyone posing as me might try to come up with one which would identify them as not being me. Understand? I see. Good thinking. He returned to his work at the computer. I didn't want to bother him, but I just had to know. What is this place anyway? Why do these things happen here? He turned to face me. It's best if you don't ask any questions, especially ones that are far above your pay grade. wasn't happy with my answer, but knew it was all I would get out of him. I let him work in peace and sat back down in the overseer's room, watching through one-way glass. That's when I realized something. The computer Al was using... It was Hank's. I double-checked the list to make sure. Yeah, that was definitely Hank's desk, and no one was to touch his computer. Didn't that apply to Al as well? I turned over the list on the off chance I might have some more information, and that's when my heart sank. 
In large, bold print on the back of the laminated sheet was text that read, Password. Diner. I grabbed my phone, reached for the scrap of paper with Al's number on it, and dialed it as fast as I could. There were a few tones before he finally picked up. Hello? Everything alright over there? Al, thank goodness. I made a mistake. I thought he was you, I let him in, and now he's on Hank's computer. He let out a long sigh of disappointment. I watched Al's copy turn from his computer and then stood up. Listen very carefully. Do not act suspicious in any way. You should be fine if he doesn't suspect anything. If you try to leave or call anyone else, it's all over. Understand? Yes, I understand. Al's copy began walking to the overseer's room. My heart was beating faster than I had before. I'll be there soon, just don't panic. He hung up and I kept the phone in my ear as AI's copy approached and I pretended to be talking to my wife. I told you, hun, six o'clock. That's when I clock out. You don't have to wait for me. You worry too much. Please, go get some rest. Al's copy was in the room with me now, staring. I held the phone to my chest and looked back at him. Everything okay? I asked. He continued to stare for a few long seconds. Can you help me something on the computer? I wondered if he could see my chest pounding. Sure, I just need to finish this phone call. I'll be there as soon as I can. He stared for another moment and then walked back to Hank's desk. Though panicked, I kept up appearances by continuing to pretend to be on the phone. I even acted on argument to lengthen the call. While doing this, I watched with bated breaths as the knob gently turned and the door swung open. It was Al. I had never been so relieved in my life. He turned to the glass and put a finger to his mouth, gesturing for me to keep quiet. The clone was not yet privy to his arrival. Al snuck up behind the clone and grabbed him by the throat. The imposter struggled, but eventually succumbed to his vicious grip. He fell to the floor, a lifeless hole, before disintegrating into the carpet. I ran to Al and thanked him. I also apologized profusely. No need to be sorry. This isn't the first thing to make it into the room, and I'm sure it won't be the last either. I'm just glad you're okay. He smiled. Speaking of which, you mind shutting the door? One one another one of me stopping by. <laughs> of course. I walked over to the door and then realized something. I left it unlocked after the copy came in. That's how Al was able to enter. Remembering the final rule, I slowly pulled out my phone and opened the call log. My most recent call connected at 10.18 p.m., 13 minutes past the deadline. I turned to see Al standing right behind me. Al, what's the password? He grinned. What password? I ran out of there as fast as I could. That room still has a strange hold over me, but I will never go back. At least, I hope I won't.